Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hi, Katarina. I'm well. Thank you. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you. Did you have a nice weekend? Yes, I'm just getting to a place where I will answer you. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Uh, let me let me no get problem. the first link and stuff. So. Yeah. No problem. I'm just sitting out on the porch with some family and the sun. So, do we know if we're expecting Serena? I don't know. Uh, I think we can maybe slowly start and then we can we can go from there. So it's mostly also so that we have a recording of a summary of the week, you know, mm, yeah. that we then upload. So yeah, it'll be. I try to keep it at an hour. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> so. Depending on how much we get into it. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, hi, everyone. Welcome to Science Society. So this is a room where we um, catch up on what um, guest speakers shared uh, this week with us. And then um, if you kind of feel like you liked what we talked about, you know, we recommend you to check out the whole replay uh, because, you know, we mainly do this to have a short summary of what happened at Science Society during the week. Okay, so yeah, um, please check the link. It should be open source and open source paper um so um let me introduce you uh so um a phd student um at ibm in zurich uh switzerland uh georgia de la ferre shared shared her well she, she now um isn't a phd student anymore but when she did the work she was still a phd student now she's a she will start her postdoc. Um, so uh, she um, works and does research at AB, um, IBM. And um, she shared a paper with us that um, is quite interesting. Um, she basically came up with, um, with a model, with a uh, neural net model that she designed uh, where um, she basically, we're not just 
um, we don't have just the regular neural net with very oversimplified neurons as <coughs> models, but um, neurons with um, dendrites. And um, when she created this model, she um, did um, behavior studies that involved uh, sound <coughs> perception in humans where they listened to two different sounds that were very unfamiliar to them and um, recorded basically how um, the synthesized and natural auditory stimulus was, um, was described <clears throat> and um, computated. And um, then they did um, this network model with this neurons that have dendrites and um, let them, the neural net basically learn completely by itself. So it was not labeled or anything. Um, and um, they found that uh, they could distinguish well the two types of sounds and also distinguish between familiar sounds and uh, new sound types. Um, and um, the number, of course, of neurons affected the learning curves. Um, and um, it was really interesting that um, this neural network she created with this um, dendrites that it performed very well in yeah, distinguishing different signals of the same nature, basically, which were sounds. And um, they also then tested if um, it could also do this with a uh, visual input and uh, it worked similarly well. So we came up with ideas, what else we could try uh, to use this model for. Um, for example, uh, one person asked to, um, if this model would maybe perform better to um, dissect out different emotions in sounds from humans or if maybe different tactile um, inputs would work well. And with that, um, basically how paralyzed people um, uh, use like artificial limbs or hands and so on, maybe better if um, this network could distinguish uh, the inputs and then also the output better. So. Uh, we came up with a lot of ideas and he said they're all wonderful. It would be a lot of, you know, manual labor to do that. Um, so, uh, but she promised to update us with her next research and if she's going to implement any of these um, ideas. So, yeah, it will be interesting to follow her research. So, yeah, check out either the recording or the paper. In the recording is also her the link to her presentation, uh, which is really interesting. So um, yeah, if you go on the club, either website or YouTube account or um, here on Clubhouse, you can check it out and uh, it will be an interesting listen. Okay, let me get the next link and um, yeah, stay tuned. <laughs>
next we had uh, Dr. Ambuster. Um, he um, talked about his research in astrocytes, um, which was really interesting um, since he found um, a new um, function of astrocytes uh, or a new type of interacting between the neurons and astrocytes communication, which was really interesting. And he is a research assistant professor in neuroscience, uh, Tufts uh, University. And um, yeah, he does a lot of electrophysiology and, um, you know, basic neuroscience um, experiments that are really interesting. And um, as I said, um, he found this um, really interesting inter way of um, neurons and astrocytes to interact and how it kind of like to shortly summarize how it works is that um, the neurons release potassium ions and these charges the electric activity of astrocytes and um, these then control then the neurotransmission so it's really an astrocyte neuron uh, crosstalk that he found and how these interactions work in the brain and in the future it will be really interesting how um, those are maybe different in people with um, mental health disorders or other brain pathology and or how these affect memory and learning and if it's involved in long-term memory um, he saw also very local uh, changes in um, these potentials created by the potassium so it's um, so the soma of the astrocyte is really not too much involved in this is really very localized to specific uh, synaptic connections between these astrocytes and the neurons and they can vary a lot um, so I think this is really interesting and nobody ever observed this before and it will explain a lot more how our brain really functions and um, yeah he's continuing this research uh, we talked a lot about um, imaging tools. He uses some really cool uh, genetic um, neuroimaging tools. Uh, but there's obviously room for improvement. A really um, specific potassium imaging tool would be really interesting to um, develop. But um, it's it's been reported to be very, very difficult even for like major labs like at Boyden, they uh, they say it will still take a few years, but um, if we could image really well this potassium flow between the neurons and uh, the astrocytes um, and combine it with the neural, uh, with the spiking activity and synaptic transmission between neurons, that would be really cool and give us a lot of more data also how mem how what astrocytes involvement is in in memory and long-term memory so it's still really interesting oh you go have ahead a question sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no go ahead yeah so so i'm hearing that it's it's a um, communication 
brought about by the differential, the potassium differential between the astrocyte and the neuron? Yeah, it's really cool. It's amazing. How is that modulated? So when the when the neurons, when they are kind of activated, they also expel uh, after potassium a lot. And this increase in potassium, uh, this very local increase in potassium, then changes um, basically the membrane potential then of the astrocytes. And this then influences uh, the astrocyte activity and what, um, and then we don't know exactly what the astrocytes do next. So this like pure neuroimaging and uh, electrophysiology data that you know looks more at different ion concentrations and it's not a current. So it's not that this potassium leads to a current uh, change. Uh, but uh, membrane potential change and this then activates the astrocytes and deactivates them. And um, in the soma, it's very different. In the astrocyte soma, um, there's more current responsible. But um, yeah, and then it, it's, we will see what comes next, what um, he will show what this Act, very local activity change of the astrocytes, what they lead into. We don't know if it changes gene expression and how directly. So, so there's a lot of unknown, but that's basically the first time we show this very direct communication between the astrocytes and the, and the neurons. It's just so amazing. Yeah, so it's the hypothesis is that um, this buildup of extracellular potassium in the brain, if there's a buildup, for example, that it may contribute to epilepsy, and that's kind of also his field, uh, and maybe migraine and so on. So, um, yeah, the future will sh show how, you know, what the astrocytes exactly do. Um, uh, to clear the buildup and, you know, if there's gene expression changes also. Uh, we talked about if we know if there's very local uh, mitochondria out there and there is, and then also, yeah, we, we just have to learn way more about like local um, gene expression regulation, if that's also as local. I've kind of think of astrocytes while I had to, you know, while I was listening to the talk, I was kind of thinking that astrocytes themselves are like little octopus, because it's really interesting. The octopus neural system, you know, they don't have the brain, a brain and the neural system like we have. It's way more independent. So each arm kind of has its own little brain and makes the decisions on its own to, to quite big extent and I was imagining like <laughs> that we have this little octopus <laughs> in our brain all over if the arms are so independently active which is really interesting well it is I'll have to tell you um what I was thinking before this room happened it's funny that you said that I was thinking that the astrocyte when I was reading about 
the, the different functions because now I'm hearing about this with the, with the communication with potassium and then maybe the astrocyte is even um, helping to control the levels in the brain or concentrations. But I was thinking that the astrocyte is sort of like Pippi Longstocking because there's a part in the book, I don't know if you've read it, but if you're, you know, yeah, a, I'm a, a kid who read Pippi like a million times and there's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a part in the book where, um, where Tommy and Annika say, Pippi, is there anything that you can't do? And she says, no. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the astrocyte. She's my childhood role model. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's right. There's nothing she can't it's do. It's all. Wasn't it the only girl, like, mm -hmm. in our generation that she was, was kind of cool? <laughs> she could do anything. She was also a homeschooler. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I love her. Yeah, she life. could carry her for us. You can make, yeah, make a mama pop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and my kids love her, too, actually. We watched the movies, like, this year, actually. Good role model for them, too. Yeah, so um, so that was Dr. Ambuster, and uh, next we had Dr. Kiehi and uh, some self-assembled logic secrets from proteins. Let me pull up the paper. Mm. And yeah, when you, if you're interested to go more deep into um the talks and also um see the presentations uh please check out the replay this is just a summary room where we give a short summary of what happened throughout the week and then you know if you if you are interested and also what people then shared in the chat sometimes it's really interesting i think what also the audience knows about it i'm quite <laughs> impressed what people share in the chat many times so it's really interesting too yeah or often we get some um links for supporting research yeah that's yeah, really great yeah. so uh yeah dr ryan um Kiehi is um at north carolina state university and his research is centered on organic material chemistry um to use organic micromolecules to um mitigate the generation and flow of electricity, um, molecular electronics, um, unconventional nanofabrication and organic photovoltaics. Um, this article, I think, is especially interesting because it has so many um, implications. So this is a proof of concept study. Uh, where they have created the self-assembled protein-based circuits that can perform simple logic functions. And um, they demonstrate that it is possible uh, with this system to create stable digital circuits that can take advantage of um, electrons' properties at the quantum scale. And the interesting thing about this is that this is... Um, at room temperature um so um which i think it's it's really really impressive so um as an example 
on a circuit with two wires that are one nanometer apart, um, they can tunnel between the two wires um, and be in both places simultaneously. And these molecular circuits can mitigate um, these um, and um, their goal, but usually these tunneling um, um, secrets, um, they are very short lived and um, have a lot of um, challenges in fabricating um, these at scale. And um, yeah, and their technology basically solves that problem, which is quite, you know, and a proof of concept, um, which is really impressive. Um, yeah, and he was a really, um, yeah, nice speaker that uh, we only had really exactly an hour, both of us, um, which, um, but he said he would be happy one day to come back and, and speak some more. He actually moved back to the US um, after being a long time living abroad, so. Yeah, so the result is um, that this is only 10 nanometers thick um, and the secret uh, functions at the quantum level operating in a tunneling regime. And because they are using a group of molecules rather than single molecules, the structure is really stable and um, they can actually print these electrodes on top of this secret and build real devices. So they created the simple diode-based um, and or logic gates from these secrets and incorporated them into these pulse modulators, which can then encode information by switching one input signal on or off, depending on the voltage or another input. So it's a PSI-based logic circuit. Uh, they can switch around a 3.3 kilohertz input signal, um, which is still one of the fastest molecular secrets yet reported. Um, yeah, so maybe hopefully this will enhance uh, one day the functionality of classical semiconductors. And um, yeah, I think it's a really exciting field that they are working in. And I'm curious to see what they what they will do next with it. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, next we had the climate room uh, with Dr. Um, I think you were there, right? With Dr. Uh, Steve um, Chihu. Um, yes. Yeah, he, that was really also oh a wonderful Across work. Asia, he was discussing, right. oh my gosh, yes. You, you want to summarize yeah. a little bit your interview? Yeah. Because the interview part mm. was most, was so amazing. It, it was. I felt that we were so honored that he shared that history with us. Yeah, he had explained that, go back in my mind, um, he had explained that during the time that he was, uh, right before he was college age, that it was, he used the term um, chaotic in China, and that there wasn't higher education available for the general public, that people were encouraged to become farmers, and that was to be everyone's goal, and that um, 
there came such a time as the chaos died down and China saw the benefit of educating the populace and um, beyond. I, I don't want to diminish the importance of, of farming and farming wisdom at all, um, but that there was choice. And so there was an exam that you could take and it would determine if you were able to go on to higher education, meaning university, and he passed the test. And so he felt so fortunate to have been able to receive an education. And beyond that, he took another exam that became available. Um, and, and then he was able to get into his field. And he explained that that was also fortunate for him because there were had previously been only two fields open. One was teaching and forgive me, but I don't remember what the other was, but there wasn't, there, were, there weren't options of, of choosing your own research was the, the thing. And, and he was able to choose his research and he went to, I believe he went to Colorado. I think he was at University of Colorado. Um, and then recognized that, the, that, um, that climate study was, was very specific and was not, it was, it was relying on averages, data of averages of regions and not, not uh, paying attention to the nuance of a place. And he, I'm sure you'll see, there was a term that he has, I have it in my notes, but um, that he used, and I can go look it up, but that was the difference in his research. I'll look it up and then when you're discussing, I'll come back and let you know. Um, that, that really was maybe an epiphany for him was recognizing that the, the weakness of using the average, that, that that really didn't drive the research toward, um, toward generating information that, that people could really use. And he wanted, to help, he wanted to help farmers and people on the land with information that was specific to them. So it's kind of interesting. It's a kind of a circle, you know, that he didn't become a farmer instead. He became a climate researcher helping farmers. Yeah, I think your discussion really, you know, uncovered the whole path that kind of gave it a way more deeper meaning um, and story, like background story about the research was really wonderful to hear. And yeah, so he works a lot with farmers to kind of educate them and use these weather prediction tools because apparently farmers usually don't and what he did was a zone by zone study of central asia um and um because if you just average out um in general central asia the climate you don't get too much um of a difference but if you do it zone by zone it shows really strikingly how much hotter and drier um, weather um, is increasing over the years and um, also desertification and um, especially in the mountains it gets and then in the mountain it gets wet wetter due to climate change but it's really not snow it's really rain that contributes to more melting of ice which on the short term it's to avoid local weather, uh, wetter climate, but in the rest of the region, it's really drier and hotter. 
And if you would average that out, you wouldn't see much of a difference. So um, he shows basically how important it is to have a more granular approach to climate um, to help farmers and to basically secure our food uh, supply, uh, which is really important for our future. And to then also educate then the farmers to use this more granular and then also therefore more um, reliable and more specific um, weather prediction uh, for them so they can cope with these weather changes that he also said uh, that people say oh um, or in the news and everywhere is always reported um, that it's exceptionally hot uh, today he said we have to stop using these words that it's an exception this is the new normal and this we have to change the mindset and change policies and uh, change how we basically do agriculture in the future um, but this has to also come along with policy changes around climate change but also to help farmers that take the risk of using these predictions because if they start now using this prediction and plan their um, and how they plan what plants they buy and so on um, and the prediction is somehow wrong after all the risk lies only on the farm and this makes it for the farmers really unattractive to try out a more scientific approach towards farming and it's only probably we discussed then for a longer time what could help with that and how we can secure basically a food stability in the future with climate change um, and with his research and other researchers so he loved the discussion he said he will come back and he wanted to be also a speaker on our next uh, climate room which will be about um, ocean currents and how uh, the Atlantic Ocean currents are declining, so he, he's already on the list, and he he really loved the discussion, and he loved to learn also from farmers that were here in the room, that are uh, doing uh, more regenerative organic farming. He would like to learn more, so it was an amazing discussion and experience in total. It was. I, I found the term he called it climate type. His more specific. Um, what, what he would discuss based on the nuance of the region. He used that term climate type. And he also said that there, is a, there had been a great deal of conflict with respect to the people's ideas for the reasons behind climate change as it is occurring in Asia. And that his research using uh, the more specific climate type was changing the way that um, changing the whole body of information that people used to make decisions about all the things that you were discussing, what plants to buy and plant, when to plant and things. Thanks to him. Yeah, it's um, because he said, usually nobody cares about those regions. So they kind of took it up really well, the news coverage and so on in those regions because usually nobody does research about 
them and, and cares about them. So um, yeah, it was received quite well, I think. So that that's really good. So I'm really, really glad that went that way <laughs> somewhere in the world. Yeah, and then we had um, the room with Dr. Kagan. Uh, let me get the link. There's the article. One second. Okay, there it is. And um, Dr. Alex Kagan, he is um, he he studied at the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, Germany, for a long time, and. Um, he um, is now a postdoctoral researcher at the Wellcome Sanger Institute. And John, you're here. <laughs> you you did most of the discussion with the room with him with Dr. Kagan. I don't know if you wanna if you wanna come up and share uh, some of oh, some of what you talked with him. But um, hi, John. How are you? Good. How are you, Katerina? Great. Um, oh, that was, yeah. Uh, is that gunfire? No, no, I just knocked over a bunch of uh, plastic lids to those big black storage boxes. <laughs> Sorry. Sounds it did dramatic. sound like gunfire. Okay. You're, well, you know, you're you know the thing to is, be able is that, to come to stage. You'll do anything to yeah. be able to come speak. And welcome, oh, John. Man, I'm glad just, you I made it here safely. <laughs> I barely, barely escaped with my life as those box covers fell on the floor. No, the, the, the iPhones have really fascinating differential pickup of different frequencies. Because if you've noticed, if there's ever birds chirping in the background and somebody's outside, it's like, no matter how far away they are, it's louder than the person speaking. So there's very differential uh, uh, pickup on the, the iPhone mics. But anyhow, um, yeah, Kagan was fascinating. And, and it was really exciting for me because um, everything that he presented it validated um, the operative hypothesis that I've had for many decades, um, just dating myself there, um, as, as a former evolutionary biologist. And um, it's just extraordinary uh, to see how much solid data that he's generated that confirm um, the, 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 the basic hypotheses that longevity is related to programmed death and that programmed death occurs at different rates in different species and different species have different lifespans and one of the things he hadn't really uh, generated data on but i mean he's generating more data than most people in this space but one of the things that would be really fascinating is looking correlating longevity with um the stability of the ecological niche of the species that that um is where their lifespan is frankly determined evolutionarily to generate enough diversity to select upon in either a highly volatile envir environment where you would want uh, longevity to be very short um, or very stable environment like the Greenland shark where the uh, ecological niche is like rock stable for millennia or millions of years. And so 
Uh, he and I are going to speak tomorrow or Tuesday for some of my follow-up questions to him about about how he's approaching it. But that was a that was a really um, eye-opening set of data that I never anticipated would have been generated this early on. And the, the other uh, last summary point I'd make is that I had proposed decades ago that there had to be multiple programmed death mechanisms because in no species are there outliers that live 2x or 3x or 4x of the typical lifespan. It just doesn't happen. The 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 max, you know, for humans, it's 120 years. I mean, nobody lives to 140. Nobody. Um, maybe Methuselah. Um, we don't know. But um, and that's true of all species. So it, that would be very difficult to achieve with genetic programming unless there was redundancy that converged on that. And, and then the last thing I didn't bring up in that room, but uh, which has always bothered me about the the aging theorists, is there's one um, uh, longevity aging person in particular who is stuck around the accumulation of toxic metabolites as the mechanism of aging and limiting longevity. And I, I think it was so, and I've debated him publicly and I've debated him privately on that. Um, and he just, just hangs on to that like, like a life preserver. But that's just epiphenomenon. Um, and, and that's what um, the, the, the research that um, Kagan's been doing uh, that was so impressive is he had four separate mechanisms that could all relatively independently account for uh, finite lifespans. So um, that really, I mean, everything he talked about um, uh, just fills in a lot of the blanks of, of um, what I was hoping would be found um, many years ago. So thanks for holding that room. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you, John. That was a great summary. So yeah, it was really impressive. So he collaborates with all kinds of zoos and um, and um, nature um, preserving um, associations that, for example, um, if, for example, different whales are under distress, they try to rescue them. If it's not possible, they take biopsies um, and then send it to him. And he kind of has this laser capture device where he can, um, um, he looks at um, cell types and then compares the mutation rates. Um, also, um, has some different age, ages from these different species and compares it. It's a huge amount of work. It's fascinating. And um, yeah, it will, and in the future, it will give us even more give give us even more data because he wants to um now that technology is advancing and it's getting also cheaper he wants to look at more uh, cell types from different organs and look at the different mutation rates and aging rates there and um sorry my kids are in the back um yeah Here, I'll, I'll fill in for a second <laughs> if you want to, to manage your kids but i i uh, the the whale issue was an interesting one I'd never thought of before, and that is, you know, if you have massively more cells in an animal that large, then how how do they compensate for aging mechanisms if there are individual cells that can uh, uh, 
trans, uh, transform into cancerous cells. And if there's an equal probability across an organ, if you have huge organs, um, isn't, doesn't that put you at higher risk of a, a life terminating uh, oncogenic event? And he um, took that as a, as, as a pathway to disambiguate some of the aging processes and had some fascinating observations about how whales offset that. The, the thing I want to discuss with him that we didn't have time for and I had to leave early um, is how the Yamanaka uh, factors, I'm, I'm not sure I'm even saying it right, but the, the stuff that David Sinclair is really pushing as um, ways to protect against aging. And I had a conversation just a week ago with someone who's deep in aging research and supplements. And what, what she suggested to me um, is that uh, a lot of those factors that purportedly will extend life may absolutely backfire because um, the way they promote longevity has to do with cell longevity. And most of those are inextricably uh, related to uh, oncogenic transformation involving uh, oncogenic viruses. So um, there's no free lunch. Um, there, there, there are lots of studies that show that, you know, food deprivation can extend life in a lot of species and, and, you know, metformin and, uh, rapamycin, uh, have systematically extended life in a lot of different, uh, you know, from invertebrates on, um, and, but, but it's not a two X or three X it's, you know, it's a 20, 30% kind of thing. Um, and, and the question is in a longer lived species like us, uh, like humans, um, is a cumulative effect of that attempt to prolong life uh, going to backfire? And this other woman I was speaking to, who's done a lot of research in that space, um, believes that a lot of what's passing as uh, health extension supplements these days um, may uh, be quite hazardous when taken daily as opposed to intermittently. And she had some very specific things to say about metformin. Um, and, and, and it has to do with uh, habituation um, and, and attenuation of effect with continued risk of side effects without continued benefit and hence the virtue of intermittent use of those kind of life extending supplements as opposed to continuous as proposed by the life extension community. So there, I mean, there's, there's more unknowns than knowns, but, um, that's, I, I hope to follow up with them, uh, either tomorrow or Tuesday offline on exactly that point. Yeah, that's interesting. I think David Sinclair kind of, you know the paper where he um where they got to uh, rejuvenate a damaged um um neuron and like um the nerve uh, the eye nerve uh-huh and they used these factors in a way that it didn't um um uh, increase the risk in cancer so that made me quite hopeful i think it was a couple of years ago or so that now maybe longer that this came out um so if you run across that paper I'd, I'd love for you to send it to me i oh, yeah. I, I i i remember reading about the paper but i never read the paper itself and i'd love to okay yeah i'll look it up and i'll send it to you it was a while ago that i spoke about this with somebody 
um yeah but that was that made me quite hopeful but i'm not sure what the stage currently is of that research but it was really hard um i heard him talk about the paper also um, when he gave a talk and you know it was they, they were almost about to give up they tried in all different ways and it always led to cancer and only then the way that described in the paper which i have to look up right now it's years it's about a few years ago it regenerated without causing cancer so yeah i'll i'll send it to you it's interesting and okay. uh, yeah but yeah it will be interesting to see because i think people are taking these supplements um without having large set of clinical data available like a lot of people are taking these and um we don't know what's actually happening to people i don't think you know since it's not real in a clinical setting but just random people are taking these we don't know what's happening to people that are taking these for a few years now uh, because you know we are not recording this would be actually really important to do more systematic um, clinical trials with these uh, independently because, you know, I think a lot of people are maybe taking risks that they don't know of. Um, I take right, it. And, and, and those kind of studies would ideally be done in people who are deep into the quantified self movement because the covariables are so profound that unless you can normalize against um, the uh, independent variables, um, it, it would be very difficult to interpret the data because people who tend to do life extension are likely to eat, sleep, exercise, and socialize in much healthier ways um, than any controls. So how you isolate out the effects of a, you know, $2,000 um, a day habit of supplements and i know people who spend two thousand dollars a day on supplements um that's uh going to be very hard to disambiguate all of their interventions plus all of the other things that are relevant to longevity so unless it's a deeply deeply uh multi-omic uh quantified self cohort it's going to be very difficult to sort that out yeah or even the the um the mindset I, that people would develop who were who were of the school of um, the toxic metabolites as evil i i really appreciated hearing you discuss that you were that you were arguing that because it's so simplistic and it's such an easy kind of bandwagon for people to get on and claim that all sorts of things are toxic which are really just food you know and i just think i always think of you know, it's it's what lies inside the vacuole of a fruit that makes it sweet, you know, and that could be a toxic metabolite and not that that's the basis for um, fruit longevity, but it is for, for flavor. And and so mm, I think it's always a red flag, always when when people are relying on um, on the, the idea of toxic metabolites. As well, and, and, and another analog of that is um, all the billions of dollars that have been spent chasing uh, neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid and tau in the brain as a cause of Alzheimer's when 
it's it's been increasingly obvious for well over a decade that those are epiphenomena, not drivers of Alzheimer's disease. And the drivers are probably much more related to a viral trigger with a genetic susceptibility to a chronic inflammatory state um, that leads to uh, accelerated progression of natural aging processes because a lot of people have amyloid and neurofibrillary tangles and tau with no evidence of cognitive decline and other people have significant alzheimer's without um impressive amounts of those so it's 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 the same kind of phenomenon as the lipofusin uh, uh accumulation in in cells that are highly correlated with aging but the correlation is probably um, in both cases, epiphenomenon rather than primary. And, and, and the fact that things are so tightly controlled within species, across all species, across the phylogenetic tree, it's hard to believe that, um, that, that, highly, that, that high metabolism species uh, wouldn't have shorter lives by that thesis, by uh, accumulating more toxic byproducts in a shorter period of time. But it just doesn't work that way. So... Um, it's, it's sort of heuristically, it's a dead on arrival kind of explanation. And yet some of the most prestigious experts in the field are still cling to that hypothesis. I know. I wrote the hypothesis paper about um, autism because it's the same thing. The same theories are going on with autism, right? That, um, you know, some toxins, maybe women using... Um, hormones and some some stuff of this nature that is causing this this increase this concerning increase in autism in developed countries and um and the hypothesis paper i wrote <laughs> i wrote against it makes no sense because in all these regions where autism is increasing at these rates quality of air and water and so on actually decrease significantly and food stability everything um it doesn't make any sense in new york i mean go 50 years back how the air quality was then and the water quality and you know the rivers and everything and look at it now germany everywhere in developed countries um, that are kind of richer, the quality is actually increasing, but autism is still increasing. So that makes no sense. There has to be something else that is going on. It would you, want, you want to hear my theory on autism? Yeah, so my, th yeah, and then I can hear my theory. Go ahead. Oh, no, I want to hear yours. I want to hear yours first. Sorry. Oh, Go ahead. yeah. So I want to hear both of them, please. So autism is basically that you have. Um, more excitability, like you have more excitability, especially in the more modern brain regions, like in cortical brain regions. So what do you need for that? You need more energy production or you're not able to. And um, I basically discussed a very simple way that, um, you know, our adaptation, like the most efficient adaptation or that is going on and that we want is increase of information processing in our brains and if we can so the pressure is for sure to adapt to 
all this social organism pressures that we have is just increase more information processing, which would mean increase the speed of information processing in the brain. So ATP production. So um, just with food stability um, having for generations now, you just take away this pressure uh, that kind of lets uh, you kind of increase the threshold of um, the offspring that gets to survive in the mother that has very high um, and very efficient ATP production uh, because the brain needs it a lot and uh, you can just you, you can just evolve in that way if you have very high uh, food security and resources security over generations and this is the population also where it increases the most and it wouldn't be a really hard um, evolutionary thing to do that you would need thousands of years it's um, you know animals and mammals do way more complicated things and you know say switch from you know there are animals that switch from male to female with temperature uh, changes so that's way more complicated than to just simply change the threshold of which offspring will make it um, and you can just change the yeah and that would also explain uh infertility rates increasing in developed countries at the same time so that's my theory oh that that's that's awesome because i actually did research on uh, invertebrates back in the day and there's a species called crepidula which is commonly known as a slipper snail and they stack on top of each other in on top of other species and the one on the bottom is always a female the one on the top is always a male and there's every transitional state including hermaphroditism i mean they can stack seven deep with you know progressive transition from female to hermaphrodite to male as you move up the stack and you can do experiments which i did to relocate them in a different position in a different stack and they can revert back to if they were at the top of the stack male and you put them in the bottom of the stack they revert to um, a female and vice versa um, and so to your point that kind of programming is very facile in a lot of species um, and very subject to an environmental circumstances that uh, i i i i totally subscribe to the heuristics behind your theory and and because autism is so incredibly variable and the spectrum is so incredibly variable there are probably multiple factors and what what i've been fascinated by is if you if you look at the rate of evolution at different aspects of biologic life organogenesis and and specialization of organs and and phylogenetic dispersion of traits and conservation of traits um and and, and master programming schemes um so a couple of things one um there's a lot of redundancy and this came up in the talk and i followed up uh with Alyssa, who was on that same call with kagan um who's studying polyploidy in in species and uh, polyploidy instead of having two copies of every gene having you know four six eight whatever um it, it, it provides essentially uh, a further 
uh, genetic resilience for environmental change and adaptation within a single generation, as opposed, in addition to cross generation. And there are master genes, um, which I'm sure you know about, Katerina, like the Hox gene or the homeobox gene, which controls um, whether a limb bud in the embryo turns into, in different species, an arm, a leg, a tail, a wing. Um, and it's, it's a highly conserved sort of master program. It's, it, it's almost like boot. It's like the boot disc for a limb. Um, and if you, if you put those two constructs together, one being sort of deliberate experimentation in a safe, redundant space, as well as affecting uh, a master controller like the Hox gene, if we imagine that there is an analog of the Hox gene that drives neurogenesis and that it is being amplified by the acceleration of the, the, the value of intelligence um, in natural selection. And if you think about the potential that that Hox-like gene that programs for neurogenesis and all the complexity of the brain um, has in, the, in its own experimentation um, some uh, uh, you know, tendency to not only raise intelligence, but to have other consequences um, that make those individuals different, not necessarily worse, but different in various ways that are defined as pathology by cultural norms, um, that the spectrum may in fact include a lot of very, very functional, highly intelligent states as sort of a, a if you will, a deliberate outcome of evolutionary biology with those that have the extreme states that could never survive without a civilization to support them on their own, um, being the casualties of that sandbox um, experimentation in the in the human genome, and so I don't I don't consider I I, I uh, presented that at a conference um, alongside um, the chief scientific officer of the uh, it's about five years ago of Autism Speaks, and. Um, he referred me to a summary that they, uh, a summary of the literature of proposed mechanisms that that they had published a couple of months earlier. And when I read it, one of the references that they had cited actually provided some evidence for exactly what I was proposing, even though it wasn't called out either in that article or in the review article as confirmation of. Uh, that hypothesis, or or at least a suggestion that it, it may be valid. So what you described makes perfect sense to me as well. So there may t be two, three, or four different mechanisms at play. And Beth is in the audience, um, texted me or back-channeled me that um, the uh, prevalence of autism uh, in children with mitochond genetic mitochondrial disorders is disproportionately high, and so that amplifies that that contributes to and amplifies the heuristics and the support for your theory. Um, it doesn't really do much for my theory, but it, it it's very supportive of your theory um, for autism. Yeah, what an interesting discussion! <laughs> Thank you, John. Yeah, that was that was great. I'm so glad you came by.
and uh, we discussed this. We we should have more discussion. Oh, your, your your rooms are awesome. Your rooms are always awesome. Um, I I have to add to that that um, I have some crepidula shells right here, like right next to me. <laughs> so just to bring bring it into real life, exactly where you were you were talking about those guys, John. I'm at the beach. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, so, so you know what a crepidula yeah, looks like? Yeah, I do. Oh, how it's, cool. So oh, how cool. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, cool. I gave my first scientific shop. publication about some work I did with crepidula. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that you've worked yeah. with that because I remember learning about that, and, and they're amazing. They can they can shift back and forth. and. Well, my, my mentor was the editor-in-chief of, of the journal Marine Biology and um, wrote a six-volume treatise in uh, sexual behavior of invertebrates. It is mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing, the permutations of, of uh, sexuality in invertebrates. Um, and 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 just as a really funny aside, one of the one of the real pioneers in marine biology, his name was Wheeler North. Um, I was 120 feet deep diving with him in Tahiti uh, when I was, I think, 17 or 18 years old, and I pointed out to him these two nudibranchs that were, you know, which are hermaphroditic, um, you know, lined up and doing what hermaphrodites can do, um, and I pointed it to him. And all of a sudden, I hear clear as day, oh, isn't that beautiful? He had learned, and I've since myself learned, how to actually talk without blowing bubbles underwater so that you can actually communicate with a human voice underwater. I had never heard of anybody else doing that. And I, uh, I learned that at a 110 to 120 feet deep and uh, off Tahiti. Uh, with uh, one of the pioneers in uh, marine biology, it was uh, I mean, it was kind of shocking, you know, to, <laughs> to actually hear someone talk yeah, with yeah, no yeah. assistance whatsoever. Wait, I, I'd love to know that because um, I don't know if you grew up with a pool in Southern California, then you recognize that when as soon as you make bubbles, that you can't understand each other, and so that was that was a common um, activity, you know, of, of friends to go sit, you know, experience you know, uh, exhale and try to sit on the bottom and then try to make words, um, you know, hopefully not drown. And, um, and once you started blowing bubbles, you were un unintelligible. So that's, that's pretty fascinating that you worked that out. And no, um, no, I didn't. Wheeler North oh, you didn't. did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and, Wheeler and, North. And, and I practiced since and it's, it's, it, it's a teachable, learnable, uh, event. Okay. We need a field trip. Definitely need a field trip. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm just thinking of, oh, sorry, Katarina. So about the beach, we will have an amazing guest speaker who uh, looks for um, in nature uh, to use different uh, diverse, you know, biomaterial, like to imitate nature, um, how to make glue, like organic nature or building materials and so on. So it will be Matt Harrington. And he will talk also about how marine, um, different marine animals use um, types, different ways to attach very efficiently to rocks and stuff and and spit out different types of food wait so you yes. this is yeah this is great oh that's so cool because i've 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 always known that somebody was going to make a fortune in uh industrial chemicals if they could figure out how muscles attach to rocks because 
the 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 strength of the attachment is just extraordinary um and there's there's a chemical there that i mean somebody somebody may have already commercialized it i, I haven't followed that since i was a budding marine bi biologist long ago but there's so much to learn um about um you know the biology from uh, the invertebrates uh, in in the neuritic zone of of the ocean. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, this will be great. Sorry, do you know about the the weavers in Japan? They weave with the byssus thread. Of I do of not. That, of I do muscle. not. Is, yeah, tell us. Tell yeah, us about giant, it. Yeah. yeah, it's it's giant. It's it's like um like. Balanus. Um, I don't. Okay, I don't remember the genus species, but they're they're huge mussels. Maybe they're about three feet long, and they're the byssus thread. So the thread of attachment that they create is so long, and it's it's also strong. It's durable, and so it's a tradition that it's gathered and woven, and it's beautiful. And and these mussels are of course endangered. They're so large, and and their environment is you know, encroached upon and, and also people, the weavers are national treasures and, and, um, yeah, look it up and I can go and see what the name of them is, but, it, but the, what they weave is beautiful. The business thread is, is sort of golden. Wow. I, I will. That, that sounds fascinating. I, I mm, mean, it's, anal it's it analogous to silk. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. It is like spider silk. But durable. <laughs> you can yank it. And weave from it, and and yeah, it's amazing. So this will be great, Katarina. Yeah, so we will have a room about a scientist that looks into this mechanism. His name is Dr. Mac Matt Harrington, and uh, it will be September fifteenth after the summer break. So sorry, <laughs> it's a long time, but I just met with him uh, Friday. I met with him here on Clubhouse to discuss the, the talk. It will be really cool. I first talk, uh, asked him because he used, um, you know, he just published a paper about using mistletoe vicin, uh for glue, for a very, very strong glue. Uh, but he said, ah, should I talk about also that I look into marine um biology for coming up with different stuff to build stuff to make glues and all kinds of i said yes of course <laughs> so it will be really interesting and next week um we will have uh tomorrow at 10 a.m est uh dr garcia ruish and she will talk about the evolution of corporative breathing which is kind of interesting uh, there's not too much <clears throat> research about uh, evolution of corporations, so uh, I think it will be quite impressive. Then we have doctor <clears throat> from Japan. Wait, when, when, is, when is that last one? Uh, that's something I'm I've been fascinated in in observing. At 10 a.m. because she's joining us from Europe. Uh, tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow at 10 oh. a.m. Oh, okay. Um, and then at in the evening at 9 p.m. EST, we have from Japan um, Dr. Um, Akira Akakugo. Um, he will talk about molecular robots, about this molecular robots work, 
and how he managed them to cooperate. So it will be a full day of cooperation, <laughs> once in robots and one in, in evolution of animals, um, and, and how they can act as swarms, um, which is really interesting. First of all, molecular robots are interesting by itself, but then that he makes them cooperate, it's really um, even more interesting. Then we'll have Dr. Um, Benny Berner. He it's more climate related room. Um, by burning fossil fuels, we increase, we are increasing in the atmosphere helium levels a lot. And we don't know yet what it means because it was recently discovered and he will talk about that research. And then we'll have on Wednesday, Dr. Ashamian. Yeah, hopefully this timing uh, holds up the perception of odor pleasantness and um, how it is across cultures. Uh, it's a neuroscience work. And then we'll have Dr. England uh, talking about Atlantic uh, Ocean Current and how they are slowing down. It's on Wednesday, 9 p.m. EST. And actually, Steve, um, Dr. Steve, who he will also be here and be part of the discussion. And then we have a lot of rooms next week because after next week, I'm not much around. So I squeezed everything in before I'm leaving town. So, and then uh, Thursday, Dr. Bennett, um, new treatment target for chronic pain. And also on Thursday, Dr. Congreve, 3D printing with light and converting, uh, light converting nanoparticles. Um, and on Friday, we'll have Dr. Santos, light-activated antibacterial molecular machines. She is an offspring of uh, Dr. Jane. I don't know if you remember. Uh, he's a pretty famous um, scientist, engineer. Um, he gave a talk here a few weeks ago, and then uh, Dr. Santos, his... Um, Former postdoc, she is now having her own uh, lab. Um, she's um, she will talk about these uh, light-activated antibacterial molecular machines, and um, yeah, that's it for next week. And then the the week of fourth of July will be a little bit less. Um, it will be a lot less because I'm not around. Uh, we'll be on vacation, but we will have here. Um, Howard Bloom, I don't know, John, if you know him. Um, he wrote like different uh, books, uh, Go Global Brain is one of them. Uh, he's an author and he uh, developed this theory of uh, uh, group evolution instead of just a one a specific um, organism evolutionary pressure. Um, his theory is that there's also evolutionary pressure for a whole group and gives a lot of examples in his book. The Global Brain is really interesting. And um, yeah, and we will have... But, yeah, the, the, thing I, the thing I love about that topic is um, how um, ADD, OCD, uh, bipolar disorders are so highly conserved um, across populations. And yet... Um, those traits don't always serve the individual well, but um, at moderate prevalence, they're incredibly valuable to the community. So I would love to hear that one. When, when, when is he speaking? 
July 11th. Okay. Uh, at 6 p.m. Yeah, he he is he was a pretty famous author for a while, and um, he's kind of reaching like giving talks again. So he, um, after a long time, he agreed to come. He's a pretty interesting Howard Bloom. Oh, he's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I just didn't hear when you first said it. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I that yeah. that'll be awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to to that one. Um, before that, um, we have July 6th, Dr. Maldonado about food addiction, vulnerability, and microRNA signatures. And Dr. Spontag, he was a guest speaker here before. Um, he will come back and talk about the self-disinfecting and ionic polymers that he developed. They're actually already being implemented, he told me, by Delta Airlines and so on uh, to, to make air flight safer um, with COVID and, you know, future pandemics. Um, you can disinfect surfaces pretty fast and um, very effectively. Um, and he will explain how and um, yeah, he's he's a really great speaker too, and um, has you know did amazing work in different fields. So, and he loves teaching. So he he is a really great and nice speaker. So, yeah, will be interesting. So next week we'll be busy. Stay tuned. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, um, enjoy the rest of your Sunday or happy Monday for around the world. Hey, I have to make a correction, and I hope everyone will please forgive me. I, it's not from Japan. I, there were some different weavers from Japan, but we won't discuss that now. Um, this this um, sea silk, they call it, is from Italy. It's off of Sardinia. And there's only one woman left who really knows how to dive and weave the silk. And there's a code that requires people to not ever sell or buy this, what they call sea silk. So it's really a beautiful and and just such a precious um, gift from the sea. So Italy, oh, not that's interesting. Yeah. You know, there mm. in Sardinia, there are various things that are dying out, like artisanal stuff, because it's mostly not also allowed by EU regulations. For example, they have very special different cheeses that can, you know, we have our regular cheese gets digested by bacteria. They have cheese that get digested by a very specific worm. And um, it has a huge tradition, like historically, it goes back in time and it's really delicious and wonderful, but it's not allowed to be sold under EU regulations. So I kind of wonder, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of, old traditions and talents and knowledge dying out with all these ridiculous regulations we have sometimes so um interesting i will look it up thank you victoria for sharing well and interestingly sardinia is one of the blue zones uh well stu well studied for lifespan and health span yes exactly so maybe and their and their their ethos about not profiting uh from a marine creature is uh conforms with uh, a lot of what I think about what's what's good for the soul and good for the body. Yeah. yeah. And digested by a worm, it's kind of like bacillus anyway, right? Similar shape, so what's the diff? Yeah, it's the, <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. It's 
it's ridiculous like a lot of farmers for example in portugal uh, when they joined the eu fully and they couldn't sell their fruits anymore or their vegetables because a eu norms have this very standards regulations like what angle a banana must have or apple and the size and angles and stuff i think they relax it a little bit so um farmers threw away and gave away all the produce or had to because they were not allowed to sell it all of a sudden because it was not that regulated shape they were not to sell it in the eu but I think that changed a little bit um, because the Portuguese farmers are, you know, since they are not these huge um, companies, they sell a lot of organic stuff actually and quite, you know, export it to all over the world for more expensive stuff because they are not the standardized fruit. And anyways, it was a huge drama back then. So he has a lot of... Um, they had a lot of ridiculous regulations, but I think they, they, they changed a little bit and it got a little bit better. Now it's a whole trend to have ugly food, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm, about, uh, I'm about to make a whole lot of noise with a grinder, so I'm going to sign off. Thanks for another great room. Yeah, Take we care. are also closing the room. Thank you for coming. Okay. All right. Have a great evening, everyone. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thank you, friends in the audience. Bye. Bye. Three, two, one. Bye, everyone.